The rocket ship analogy is one that is often misunderstood and misrepresented because people think, oh, startups like a rocket ship. Rocket ships are fun. You get to go to space. It's like, no, that's not the point of that metaphor or it's only part of it, right? Yeah, sure. Like you get to go to space, but also you experience incredibly high G-forces and they often blow up on the way. So that is why a startup is like a rocket ship. It's not all fun and games. You're listening to the Startup Podcast. This is an educational episode in-depth masterclasses about the concepts essential to building, running, and investing in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're a founder, investor, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights into the principles that power high-growth disruption the same way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hey, I'm Chris. And I'm Yaniv. And on today's episode, we want to record a walkthrough of my recently published comparison table comparing traditional business and Silicon Valley style startups. What we want to do is compare and contrast the characteristics and behavior of a traditional business and a Silicon Valley style company. This is a little bit of a sequel to our first episode we called Small Business Syndrome, where we talked about the differences between small companies and startups. And also, this is really another way of emphasizing a theme that we have on the show, which is to know which game you're playing and to make sure that all your behavior, all your thought processes, all of your perspectives are aligned with that game. Often what we see, right, is people who are running a startup, but thinking and acting like a large company, because maybe that's their background or that's what they've learned in business school, or they're in a large company and they're trying to figure out why a startup might be kicking their butt or how they can act in more innovative and agile ways. This is really second edition. This is us revisiting our very first episode and talking about small business syndrome with all the thinking that we've developed and the vocabulary that we've developed between us and putting a little bit more structure around that. So I'm really excited. Let's bust right in. This episode of the Startup Podcast is brought to you by Vanta. You might know that sinking feeling. You're about to land a big contract when they ask about compliance. SOC 2, ISO, PCI, Essential 8. You've just snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. Not anymore. Vanta massively accelerates your compliance efforts and allows you to get those life-changing deals back on track. Don't wait until it's panic stations, though. Get started with Vanta today. They're offering 20% off their prices just for TSP listeners. Do yourself a favor. Hit pause. Go to vanta.com slash TSP. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com to get that 20% off. This episode of the Startup Podcast is brought to you by Coda. If you want a platform that empowers your startup to strategize, plan, and track goals effectively, you can get started with Coda today for free and get a $1,000 credit at coda.io slash TSP. That's C-O-D-A dot I-O slash TSP for the Startup Podcast to get started for free and get a $1,000 credit. Coda.io slash TSP. Before we dump in, maybe let's just kind of give a quick summary of the facets of a business that we're going to compare and contrast. So we're going to cover things like what are their primary objectives and how do they differ? What are their primary activities? What are their leadership styles? What's their risk tolerance, their execution style? How do they engage with their industry? How do they spend or focus their attention? And how do they compensate staff? And across each of these dimensions, and many more actually, startups and traditional companies act very, very differently. So let's jump right in and compare them. So the first comparison between a traditional business and a Silicon Valley style startup is what is its primary objective? A traditional business is typically concerned with incremental revenue growth and margin growth. 
right? They're aiming for a steady, reliable financial expansion, and they tend to look for profitability. They try to minimize risks. They're trying to squeeze more juice out of the lemon <laughs> they already have. Whereas a Silicon Valley style startup is typically aiming for rapid growth and scale. Where a small business might be happy with eking out a percentage point or two or three of growth each quarter, each month, a Silicon Valley style company is looking to grow 20% month over month, typically. And they're seeking explosive growth. They're trying to dominate a market. They're trying to disrupt and expand. And especially if their business model is rooted in network effects and flywheels, they typically understand that the first to scale wins. So they want to be moving really fast and getting to scale. I think this is a good comparison. And you mentioned profit. And I think actually profit is even more important than revenue growth. And when we think about a traditional business in its earlier stages, what the balance sheet, the P&L should look like at the earlier stages is like a mini version of what the P&L looks like at a later stage, right? So in year one, you might make $50,000 of revenue and $10,000 profit. In year two, you might make $100,000 in revenue and $20,000 profit and so on, right? So you're aiming to be maybe, except from your very first few months, you're aiming to be profitable. You're aiming to grow based on the capital that you're bringing in, the revenue that you're bringing in and so on. And you always want to be margin positive and profitable. With the Silicon Valley style startup, I think this is one of the easiest or most common mistakes we see. The P&L for the first few years of a Silicon Valley startup looks nothing like the P&L of a traditional business. Eventually, once you hit scale, once you've IPO'd or whatever, you know, you're really huge, then your P&L should look a lot like that of a traditional business, except better, right? It should have higher margins. It should have massive volumes and huge economies of scale, huge network effects. But until then, if you look at your metrics and if you look at your objectives through the view of a traditional business of, oh, okay, you need to make a little bit of a profit and then a bigger profit, you need to grow revenue each year and so on, you are missing the point. The point is to get to that point of scale as quickly as you can and then reap the benefits of that. Silicon Valley style startups tend to be high capex, low opex, or at least high capex, high margin. What that means is you need to invest huge amounts to get to the point where you can start reaping the rewards. And if you try to build your Silicon Valley style startup in a way that you're also reaping the rewards along the way, then you'll never get to where you need to go. And that is the most common misunderstanding that I see from founders everywhere. Yeah, and it's really important to explain why this works and why this difference exists, right? In a traditional business, you are typically picking up a widget for a dollar and selling it for two. You are maybe running a restaurant where you hire a waiter for a dollar and sell their time and food for two. And so there's a linear relationship or there's a direct relationship between your input costs and your output costs. And if you're able to drive some efficiency out of that, maybe you can make $3 instead of $2. And that margin is where your profit lives, right? In a Silicon Valley stock startup, it is typically and almost necessarily powered by software. It has an unfair technical advantage. And so software is easy to replicate and scale, right? So you spend a lot of investment, a lot of capex into building the software, building the distribution, building the brand, building the business. That's where all the capex comes from. And then to just run the servers is near zero. And so that's why this dynamic exists in a software-powered startup. Now, this is true to various degrees for various companies, right? Like WeWork claimed to be a Silicon Valley-style startup, but there's actually very little software advantage. Whereas an Uber is a very operational-heavy, cost-heavy business, but the software gave it a lot of advantages. Not 
total advantages, but a lot of advantages. And then all the way on the other end of the spectrum, you have just pure software businesses like an Instagram or a Facebook, where there's very little operational real world implications. And those businesses have just massive, massive economies of scale and network effects. And so that's why it's often really confusing. Like, why are these companies allowed to lose money? And why are they delaying gratification? Why, why, why? Why does VC work here and not there? It's really, really rooted in the economics of software. And that's something that's all too often lost, I think. That's right. Maybe one quick analogy before we move on is, in a sense, what you're trying to build with a Silicon Valley style startup is a money printing machine. I mean, assuming that money printing machines were legal, right? And that's what I mean when I say high capex, high margin, right? Let's say we want to build a machine that just prints off money and you've got some ideas about how to build it. You're not quite sure whether it'll work, but certainly you don't get your first nice hundred dollar bill out of that thing until it's finished. And it will cost you millions of dollars to build it and it may not work. That is your Silicon Valley style startup. You cannot expect to get money out of your money printing machine when it's not built yet. And if you try, then you're going to twist yourself into a pretzel, make all sorts of compromises instead of focusing on what you need to do, which is to build this thing. And a money printing machine is extremely high margin. doesn't cost much to print a hundred dollar bill, but it's worth a hundred dollars. That is what you're building. And once it is built, why are all the most valuable companies in the world now tech companies? Because they are money printing machines. And so that is the game that you're playing. And if you don't understand that, you will unlikely succeed. In a previous episode recently, we talked about chasing two rabbits. And someone showing you an elephant and going, well, that's an animal. I'll, maybe I'll chase that now. To use the money printing machine analogy, it's like you've intended to build a money printing machine and someone came up to you and said, oh, you have some ink. Can we spend some time making some great signs for a protest <laughs> I'm running? And someone else comes yeah. along and says, hey, can you print, uh, you know, can you print posters for me? And it's like you get distracted from making the money printing machine. <laughs> And then you're like doing a distribution partnership with a bank because you're like, if we can get our money into their ATMs, we'll grow faster. <laughs> and then you're stuck in meetings with a bank. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And so this is something that we repeat over and over again with different metaphors and different framing. But like you can't stop the invention of your money printing machine because someone is offering you some money for your ink, right? Yeah. Get to the money printing machine. And that's why you don't stop to collect money for the thing before you've built it. And that's so, so important because it just derails you off into some other direction. All right. The next facet that we want to compare between traditional business and Silicon Valley style startups is their primary activity. So, of course, the traditional business's primary activity is about leveraging and optimizing the product market fit they already have and driving incremental revenue out of that. So they want to refine their offering. Maybe they're buying a widget from here and selling it there. They know people want to buy widgets. It's just a widget. There's plenty of widget selling companies. They know how that works. They know who the customer of the widget is. And they're just trying to eke out some incremental optimization. So they're packaging it a little better, they're finding a better supplier, they're finding a lower cost vendor, and they're taking this existing, well-understood problem and optimizing it, dialing it in. And they're leveraging that product market fit for better margins and to break into new markets. On the other hand, the primary activity of a Silicon Valley style startup is exploration through rapid experimentation and iteration because they're trying to find product market fit. Because typically these companies are breaking new ground. They're disrupting something. They're rethinking something from first principles and from software. And so they operate with a whole bunch of uncertainty and they're having to embrace a culture of exploring, testing, listening, learning, iterating until they find product market fit. And this is a really, really important difference. One is taking existing product market fit and dialing it in and living in that product market fit. The other is rapidly trying to find the product market fit. 
that's a very different behavior. One of incrementalism versus one of innovation and disruption. Yeah, this is really, really fundamental. And it's to do with the level of uncertainty as well, right? I often talk about startups as being effectively a learning machine, right? They take capital and expertise and they use that to learn as quickly as possible how to do what they need to do, how to build that money printing machine. If everyone knew how to build money printing machines, well, guess what? You know, you'd have hyperinflation. The whole point is that money printing machines require a lot of learning to build. Otherwise, it already exists and all the margin would have been starched out of them. Whereas if you are not building a money printing machine, you are just there building a business, you're not there to figure out how it works. You should learn how it works. If you want to open a restaurant, work at a restaurant first, understand how restaurants work, and then create your own one. And like you said, Chris, this is all about operational efficiency, innovating around the edges, but not innovating in the core. You basically understand what you're doing, and your job is to do it well. And, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot is false precision. I see this infecting startups all the time. This idea that to be professional, to be good at your startup is to already understand what it is that you're building, right? Otherwise, it seems like you are clueless or incompetent. Because yes, in traditional business, if you go into a business with no clue how it works, then you're on a hiding to nothing. You are putting yourself there to fail. Whereas in a startup, you need to go in with this learning mindset of, I don't know but what I'm good at is figuring it out. What I'm good at is efficiently learning, efficiently exploring. And if you move straight into execution mode because you think you should already know it all, you'll build the wrong thing. And how often do we hear about that? These so-called MVPs, which are actually giant, bloated, year-long projects that take all of the startup's capital and then that customers don't want. You must be humble. You must be in exploration mode. Yeah, and I think it is worth using real company types to tease this out. You mentioned restaurants. I mentioned them earlier. When we talk about a traditional business, we're talking about a restaurant. We're talking about an agency. We're talking about a professional services company. We're talking about a widget distributor, right? These are well-worn, well-understood business models and businesses. And so there's no exploration there. There's no struggle to find product market fit, typically, maybe a little bit around the edges. And so you're not inventing anything. You want to go learn how a widget company works, how a restaurant works, how an agency works. Whereas when you're building a whole new thing that hasn't been created before because you've discovered some inefficiency, waste and suffering in the world and you want to rethink it through first principles and technology, you have to invent it along the way. And so that's what the primary activity is of a startup. Now, the next facet that we want to compare and contrast is leadership style. This is particularly true in larger companies, larger traditional companies. The leadership style tends to be a lot of consensus building, right? You consult with legal and consult with marketing, consult with sales and consult with all the people and you've hired all these people in, these big corporates, and you are trying to make sure you don't make any misstep. Every stakeholder needs to be consulted and discussed and there tends to be a little bit of design by committee, a little bit of moving slowly and incrementally and making sure you don't break the business. And this is all very reasonable and appropriate. I don't mean to say any of that with any pejorative way, although it can get overwrought and bureaucratic. But with a startup, the leadership style tends to be more rooted in the founder's vision, mission, and inspiration. So they may not have all the answers, but they have fewer stakeholders. They have fewer established norms. They have fewer risks in terms of damaging the business and the business's reputation. They have fewer customers to worry about. And so they need to start making bets. Like, I believe that there may be product market fit over there. I believe there's a problem here. I believe that we can just push back on this regulation or the status quo or this domain dogma and change our mindset about this in this way. And there tends to be a little bit less of like, everybody needs to be happy. Although you do need to consult and talk to people and get a good worldview and triangulate 
the truth, but it tends to be a little more about the founder having the latitude to make a bet and to push the business forward and explore new ground. I mean, I'd like to workshop this one a little bit with you, Chris, because I definitely understand what you're getting at and I mostly agree, but I think there's some sort of nuance here, right? I don't want listeners to walk away from this thinking the leadership style required in a startup is not collaborative, does not require consultation with the team and so on, and that it's just top-down general and minions, right? I actually think that a good startup, and we've talked about this in a lot of different episodes, requires an environment and a culture where there is vigorous debate and a really high degree degree of agency for the various employees. And so this is not about command and control, but I think what it is about is the founder setting this really strong vision, right? Of saying, okay, this is what we're building. I don't know how to build it. And you are here with me because I believe you can help me figure out together how we build this money printing machine. But this is the direction that we are going and this is the hill that we are climbing together and it's an exciting one. So I think it's much more founder-centered, much more inspirational, but not directive in my view. Yes. Yeah, no, 100% agreed. And the inspiration for this comparison, Yanev, is where I'll encounter slightly larger startups who Mm. have pivoted to acting like traditional companies. They want to rotate. They want to become more agile. They've realized that they didn't ever find product market fit, but they overbuilt. And the CEO and the leadership team can get into this very big co-consultative process where everyone has a say and we don't want to upset the culture. And it's like, hey, guys, you're still a freaking startup. You do not have product market fit. You have not figured this out but yet you're kind of acting like a bigger company and you haven't really earned the right to do that yet. And so it's my attempt to remind founders and CEOs of these companies in this awkward middle stage that you have to continue to be brash and to be bold and to be inspirational. Bold was the word that I had knocking about in my head. Bold is critical. Yeah. I think that that's really the core of this. And I think it segues nicely to your next point around risk tolerance. Acting as though you are the captain of a gigantic ship that turns slowly and that you want to have a steady hand on the tiller. No, you need to still be willing to make radical changes to have that license, which is why often there's such an importance placed on the founder CEO, because they're the only person who can really say, okay, even though we have an established business here, We're going to do a major pivot. We're going to make big changes. We're going to be bold. We're going to be true to our vision and our mission, even if that is uncomfortable. And again, it goes back to that, okay, we're not just incrementally growing our revenue. Maybe we'll actually shrink our revenue to make this change, right? But it is aligned to our mission. That's a big one. That is really important. Yeah, that's a big one. We may need to shed revenue, fire customers who are the wrong customer, right? And this is especially true and related to the idea of firing the CEO. You know, I've heard lately a kind of ambivalence around the idea of, well, sometimes the founder CEO is not the right guy and you got to replace them. I don't have ambivalence about that. I think the way to maximize the probability of success for a startup, to have it be a really big impact startup, is to have the CEO be a founder. And I think that, of course, if that founder is turned toxic or is holding the company back and it's a last resort, you got to get rid of them, you got to get rid of them. But it is highly desirable that that CEO is a founder because they have the mandate. They have the kind of moral and technical ability to say, no, we're going to switch gears. We're going to do it fast. 
I'm not a hired gun. I didn't come here to baby everybody. This is my baby. And I'm telling you where we're going. Without the ability to act like a speedboat captain, you're really putting a headwind in front of that company. And you're right, Yanev, this is a good segue into the next characteristic we want to compare and contrast, which is risk tolerance. Traditional businesses tend to be relatively risk averse, especially the larger ones. They're preferring stable growth. They emphasize cautious evaluation, predictable strategies, steering clear of high risk ventures. They want to sell more widgets next year than they sold this year. And they want to understand how to predict and model that. Maybe they got a bank loan or a family dependent on them or they're a big public company and they need to reduce risks and maximize rewards. On the startup side, well, they don't have product market fit. They don't have a well-worn pathway. They don't have a traditional business model. They need to tolerate and embrace and look for potentially high-risk, high-reward models of engagement. They need to be comfortable with uncertainty. They need to be able to digest that uncertainty, ask the right questions, and aim for not a comfortable status quo, but a disruption of the market. So I've got a few sort of analogies knocking around in my head. So let me just sort of spit them out and see what sticks. I think what this comes down to is we talk about risk tolerance, but if we zoom out, the real way of thinking about this is what is the biggest risk that faces this business, right? So with a small business that's generating profit, you've kind of got a a goose that's laying golden eggs and you, you don't want the goose to die. You don't want to kill the goose. So that means you want to be a careful steward of what you've built. So on the one side, you've got the goose laying golden eggs. On the other side, you've got like, you know, I've been watching SpaceX launch their rockets recently. And, you know, startups are often called rocket ships. So I think it's apt, right? The point of launching a rocket is you need to escape Earth's gravitational field, right? Like there's there's no point of having a rocket that gets you halfway, a rocket that goes slower so that it's less likely to blow up. If it doesn't have the power to escape the gravitational field, it's going to fail anyway. And I think that's the point, right? Things that look like big risks at a startup are not big risks because it's actually the biggest risk is that you simply fail to succeed in the first place. And without taking those big swings, you will fail to succeed. And so as much as I'm not a fan of Elon Musk, you know, there's all these people saying, oh, look, you know, his rockets run these test launches and they blow up. He's obviously not doing a good job. They're failing. It's like, no, they know that there's only two options, right? They reach space or they blow up. And so they're running tests and they're quite comfortable with that explosion because there's no point getting halfway to space. Like it's not viable. And similarly, a startup that doesn't achieve that escape velocity, that doesn't get to the money printing machine, that high margin scaled outcome is simply a zombie company that has taken in a bunch of outside capital and is, you know, anemic. It's unprofitable or barely profitable, has no clear path to scale, no clear path to growth. That is actually a worse outcome than rapid failure. So these things, they look like big risks, but actually you need to change your mindset and say the biggest risk is being conservative because you will never get to space that way. Yeah, the rocket ship metaphor is a brilliant one, right? Because a lot of founders are trying to carefully get their rocket to crash further out. (laughs) Just like, we're careful. We won't get into space, but at least it will crash further away from the launch pad. What is the point, right? And let's even take the example of Elon Musk more literally. He has small rockets that work. And the safe thing to do would be to say, well, let's just do that all day long. But that's not his mission. His mission is to massively reduce the cost to lift cargo into space to create a spacefaring civilization, right? And so to rest on your laurels and go, well, we built the rocket, it goes into orbit, we're done, is not the story that you're trying to tell. He needs to take yet more risks to build yet bigger rockets. And those rockets are in a binary state. They either get to orbit or they don't. And he would rather that thing blow up on the launch pad and he learns why than they sort of just kind of meander and blow up in the ocean and at least they didn't blow up on the launch pad. 
And so this is such a great analogy. And even in the example of he has a rocket that gets to orbit, that's not good enough. It doesn't actually meet the needs of the mission of the business. Yeah, the rocket ship analogy is one that is often misunderstood and misrepresented because people think, oh, startups like a rocket ship. Rocket ships are fun. You get to go to space. It's like, no, that's not the point of that metaphor or it's only part of it, right? Yeah, sure. Like you get to go to space, but also you experience incredibly high G-forces and they often blow up on the way. So that is why a startup is like a rocket ship. It's not all fun and games. This episode of the Startup Podcast is brought to you by Vanta. The team at Vanta are passionate about helping you secure your business by vastly cutting down on the time to get compliant with frameworks like ISO 27001, SOC 2, and Essential 8. Vanta lets you close deals, sleep better at night, and get back to building your product. Help yourself and help the podcast by going to vanta.com slash TSP for an exclusive 20% off deal. All right, so you guys are probably detecting a pattern here. <laughs> These things are all related. But the next comparison we want to make is around execution style. So large companies specifically, but traditional businesses in general, tend to engage in an execution style that is incremental, that's sustainable, that's optimized for efficiency. So they're focused on productivity, they're focused on quality, they're focused on incremental enhancements to squeeze out costs and to drive efficiency. That's not the execution style of a startup. The startup is optimizing for hustle and speed and shipping and learning, right? So they have limited runways, they have high opportunity cost, and they need to break new ground. They need to get into orbit, right? And so startups prioritize moving fast, breaking things, getting a lot of launches on the pad and firing them off and seeing what happens. They're optimizing for speed to do as many iterations as possible in their product to try to find that product market fit. Even if the code's a little, you know, janky, even if their support operations aren't quite there, even if they're using spreadsheets or whatever behind the scenes, even if they're not quite sure about how they're going to solve this or that, they just want to get it out there and test, 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 learn, learn, learn. And so there's a very, very different way of behaving and a different thing that the engineering team is even optimizing for much less the rest of the company. There are two things here, right? And again, bringing together a few of our earlier points, we are trying to learn how to build this money printing machine. And also there is no existing knowledge, which means the only way we can learn is in the market, right? We can't go to like university and learn how to do this thing. We learn by shipping. And so all of our execution, our business case, such as it is, isn't like, oh, okay, What's the return on investment in terms of like, if we build this thing, how much extra revenue will it bring us or whatever? It's like, how quickly can we learn the thing that we need to learn? So planning at startups should really be about like, what are our greatest areas of risk and uncertainty? And how do we remove those by quickly learning against those things? And it is a very different way of executing and one that only a small number of startups get really great at. And I'll be honest, I don't think I've ever successfully been part of a startup that is excellent at this. I've been in some that have been okay at it but getting really good at optimizing for shipping and learning and thinking every dollar, every day, the opportunity cost is I haven't learned enough today, not I haven't, you know, built the right product or I haven't built things in the right way. And so it's really focusing in on that. All right. The next facet is, and this one's an important one, is industry engagement. And I was actually having a debate on LinkedIn about this one. Traditional companies, especially established larger traditional companies, but traditional companies generally are typically involved and interested in ecosystem building and partnerships, right? They're in a well-worn space with a well-worn business model, with a well-worn set of incumbents and potential suppliers and partners and vendors. And they tend to want to create links with those companies and fit themselves into the ecosystem and play well with others because it's a well understood ecosystem. 
And the thing they're selling is typically well understood. Again, it's widgets or it's professional services or it's food in a restaurant. Whereas startups are typically about disrupting the status quo rather than partnering with too many people or supporting existing players in a category. They are typically trying to break the category, to disrupt it, to shift paradigms to be software first, to have a new and novel business model, to ignore domain dogma, to think from first principles, to minimize waste and inefficiency, and to capture some of that value creation for themselves at the cost of the ecosystem, of the incumbent players in the ecosystem. And so typically, a startup is not looking to partner, they're looking to kill, they're looking to disrupt. Now, the pushback on this is often, well, partners have existing users, they have existing distribution, they help you scale faster, you may be offering your product to those partners. And this is all a misunderstanding. So the last example I gave where you're trying to give your product to partners well, firstly, you want to be careful about relying on incumbents to go to market with a product. You may want to be going direct to that customer and disrupting the space. But the other is those people that you're selling your product to, they're not partners. They're customers. You are a vendor, not a partner. That is a very important nomenclature difference. You want to sell standardized things to people in a standardized way. That makes them your customer, not your partner. That's the first thing. And the second thing is these distribution partnerships where they are taking your product to market for you tend to also be a dead end. And we've talked extensively about this, Yanev. But when you're building something disruptive and new and novel, you need to figure out how to take it to market yourself, how to message it, how to onboard people. You want to own the relationship with your end customer or end user. These distribution partnerships, they tend to be a good way to optimize or supercharge that later once you've figured out how to do it. But at the beginning, they tend to be ways of just mediating you from the market and distracting and delaying your success into market, not as a way to scale. They tend to not actually work out as a way to scale and to fast forward your growth. Yeah. Look, this is the one that you get in the most trouble for, Chris. And I think, you know, you explained some of the nuances here, right? And you're really talking here, especially about distribution partnerships. And just to even define that a bit more, a distribution partnership is basically when you use some other company's distribution, you're effectively piggybacking, right? So it's like they have a bunch of retail stores and you're like, oh, okay, I will have my product featured in these retail stores or we'll offer a discount or we'll have vouchers or whatever, right? And the problem with that is, First of all, it just slows you down. Like we were just talking about execution style, hustle, speed, optimized for shipping and learning. Suddenly in between you and your customers is a third party and a third party whose incentives are probably not particularly aligned with yours, right? So of course you need distribution, right? And you can buy distribution on ad networks and use PR and all sorts of things, right? But that's a, a fairly clean transaction. Again, not a partnership. Facebook's not your partner. You pay them money, they give you distribution. So it's nice and easy and the incentives are clean. Whereas a distribution partner, it's like, oh, okay, you know, we need to agree on our terms. And then it's like, oh, our engineering team won't fit the integration into their roadmap until next quarter and blah, blah, blah. And then they maybe have a change of leadership or a change of direction, a change of strategy that means that your partnership's not as interesting to them. There are communication challenges. So all of these things, you've taken something that is hard, which is shipping product fast and made it a whole lot harder. And you have lost a whole lot of the control around that speed. And so for me, that's actually the biggest issue with distribution partners. You're right, Chris, most of the time they fail but they also fail slowly and painfully. It's not something that you sort of try quickly and it's like, oh, that didn't work. We'll move on to the next one. You get all gummed up in the partnership and the engagement rather than in execution. Yeah, look, 
it's not just distribution partnerships, and I'll explain in a second, but distribution partnerships are very painful for all of the reasons you said. You have no control over the messaging, of the way it goes to market. There's no iteration. There's no learning. They expect you to have a well-understood product and act like a big company because they need certainty. They need to be able to digest what you've got and take it to market. And if what you've got is truly disruptive or truly new or truly novel, you don't have any of that. And in fact, it, it's potentially a risk to their business, not a help to their business. But it's not just distribution partnerships, Yanev. It's also potentially supplier partnerships. I'm always trying to be careful about, you know, being too explicit about the companies I'm thinking about as I'm talking. But there is one company that I'll, I'll flirt with the line here where they're trying to build a new style of logistics company, a bit like Uber, but not for individual cars and riders, but more for high up occupancy vehicles, let's say buses. They are trying to disrupt the way buses work and they're trying to make them more predictable, more trackable, smarter routing and so on. And their first impulse is like, hey, let's partner with bus companies and sell them this software and partner with them. But the problem is bus companies are run by legacy thinkers and legacy players, very salt of the earth people who have no interest in disrupting their business model. They have no interest in adding more trackability, operational efficiency, smart routing. Like they don't understand any of that. They do not want that. It's like if Uber went to taxi or to limousine companies that we have dispatch software for you. The taxi companies and the limousine companies would have gone, what do we do with that, right? If it's if you go to Blockbuster and say, we have smarter DVD rental CRM software for you, they go, what do we do with that? But we can partner and we can sell you this. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. That's not partnership though, Chris. This is about the B2B versus the B2C, right? This is about saying you're trying to sell to other businesses rather than trying to disrupt which I agree is problematic as well, but that's different from the partnership issue, I think. It's partnership in the sense that in order for this product to work and your vision to succeed, which is to disrupt the rider experience, you need to partner with suppliers, traditional incumbent suppliers, and have them be part of your product and have them play along with you on a certain level. And it's not a clean, like we'll sell you a piece of software and then it improves some part of your business. We wanna convince you to improve your business so that we can then deliver something better to customers. It's actually B to B to C. And that just doesn't work when you're trying to disrupt the status quo. And it is a kind of distribution, kind of supplier, kind of customer relationship that is all messy and it's all wrapped around the axle. And the high order bit, the bit that is common to all of this is, as a startup, your role is less to fit into and partner with the status quo of the industry and build an ecosystem with those incumbent players. And it is typically more to disrupt the status quo and to disrupt the industry. That is typically what you need to be looking for. Let me not debate it, but I think there's another bit that competes to be the higher order bit here, Chris, the one that I think matters more to me personally, which is about keeping control of your destiny as a startup, right? So it's less about, for me, I mean, the disruption thing is, is real. What you're saying is real, but the biggest problem for me with this stuff is you are handing over your day-to-day, -day, you are handing over your ability to control your execution and your roadmap to someone else whose incentives are not the same as yours, whose pace of execution is probably lower than yours. And that is just so demoralizing and so harmful to the whole culture and ethos of what you're trying to do with your startup. Absolutely. That's a great way of framing it.
The second last characteristic we want to compare and contrast today is how these companies focus their attention. So traditional companies, again, especially larger traditional companies, they tend to want to diversify their focus areas. They want to expand their revenue. So they're selling widgets already. They know how to do that. They've done that well. Well, now they want to expand into blue widgets and red widgets and and thingamabobs, right? So they want to start adding more and more lines of revenue, more and more product lines, and they want to expand expand their offering and to leverage their existing product market fit, their existing customers into more opportunities. But again, for startups, you don't yet have product market fit. You don't have a traditional business model. You don't have a widget that everybody understands typically. And so startups, they need to start with a very, very narrow focus. They need to put all of their wood behind one arrow until they achieve breakout success. They have limited resources. They have limited relationships. They have limited credibility. They have limited capacity. And so they want to deliver exceptional value in one specific niche. Peter Thiel calls it becoming a monopoly in a niche. And to really create breakout differentiation in that one area before expanding into logical adjacencies. And so, again, a lot of founders and operators who come from traditional larger companies will start a startup and believe like, hey, we need to do seven different things in order to succeed. But they're trying to replicate what they learned in their business degree or in their large company that they worked for and don't understand the essential purpose of focus in their young company. It's really hard and it's harder than you would think. I think the psychological reason for that, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, is it involves saying no to nearly everything and saying no to a whole lot of really good opportunities and also saying no in the face of uncertainty as to whether that one specific niche and your one narrow focus are actually the right ones. Because again, as we talked about, we're learning. So it feels like oh, we're putting all our eggs in one basket. Damn right, you're putting all your eggs in one basket. That is the only way you're going to succeed. And it's a really painful thing to do. It goes against a lot of human nature. And I think that's what I've observed in myself and in others. So this is 100% correct. I think it's also probably the hardest out of all of these things to actually implement successfully. So what I implore all of you to do is to really challenge yourself. If you're not feeling fairly extreme discomfort about how narrow you are, you are probably not narrow enough. So every day, think about that. Yeah, my favorite phrase is an uncomfortably, embarrassingly narrow niche, right? And, you know, to go back to the money printing machine, we, we already kind of gave this example, but it's like somebody comes to you and says, hey, you're not really sure if you can make really great money and that will pass, you know, the, <laughs> the fraud tests and the watermarks and whatever. And so you don't know if you're really going to get away with this, but hey, I'm here with a hundred bucks to buy your ink from you. And you're like, well, shit, a hundred bucks in my hand is better than be able to print hundreds of dollars that I'm not even sure I can print. And so like, yeah, I'll take your hundred bucks and give you some ink. And it's like, well, hang on a second. You just traded the money printing machine for a hundred bucks. And so that's an opportunity. It is a real opportunity. Chris, they're offering us a hundred bucks for our ink. And it's like, but weren't you going to use that ink to print thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars? Oh yeah, shit, we forgot. <laughs> but in a way, in a way, Chris, you're talking about an easy thing to continue to break this analogy. It's often more like, hey, you know, we shouldn't just do hundred dollar bills. We should also do twenties and, and maybe we should do Canadian dollars too and stuff like that. It's like, no, one type of money, that's all, that's all you get, right? And once you get that working, you can think about the adjacencies, but really focus on just one thing and doing it well. Yeah, that's a good one. You want to figure out the pattern for the hundred dollars before you start making all the money. 
All right, and the last characteristic we want to compare and contrast between traditional businesses and Silicon Valley style startups is the way they compensate their staff and really the way the staff think about their employment. Traditional company, they're typically paying industry standard rates or maybe a little bit of a premium to try to get better people and maybe some bonuses. And that compensation tends to be competitive on the face of it in terms of just the cash that you're getting. And they pay in cash, right? They're paying you dollars up front every whatever fortnight, every month. And that money ends up in your bank account and everybody's happy. And they're paying it from revenue, right? Now, a Silicon Valley style startup, particularly at the beginning, is not paying the founders anything. But once it starts to hire employees, it would be typically paying those employees a moderate amount of cash, maybe even on the low side of industry standard. But they're also typically paying in equity, in stock options and RSUs. And we have a whole episode about employee share option pool programs in the back catalog a few episodes back, so go check that out. But the idea is that you want your employees to not be taking too much capital out of the business. You want to minimize your burn and you want them to be highly, highly incentivized to act in all the ways we've just been describing, to have a high degree of hustle, a high degree of speed, a high degree of passion, to iterate quickly, to learn quickly, and to really help you break new ground. And one of the ways of doing that, one of the many ways, is to make sure that they're able to participate in the upside by giving them a little bit of ownership in the company. And so that's really important for driving great employee behavior, for aligning incentives, for reducing some of the burn on your runway, and to get everybody aligned with with the real vision and mission of this company, which is big breakthrough disruptive success. I agree. I want to say something about bonuses because I actually really hate bonuses. <laughs> Despite having received a number of them and enjoying the money, quite commonly the industry jargon for stock options are long-term incentive or LTI and bonuses are short-term incentive or STI, right? And typically a bonus is you get money at the end of the year proportional to your own performance or proportional to the company's performance on some set of metrics. And to me, it flies in the face of the basic startup principles that we have been talking about in this episode and in so many other episodes, which is you are a learning machine. You don't really know what the right metrics are to hit. You don't really know how to build it. You don't know what's going to work. You don't know what's not going to work. You're not trying to optimize revenue for this year. You're trying to optimize revenue 10 years from now so that you're worth billions of dollars. And you want to be able to pivot during the year. You want flexibility. And tying people's compensation to a bunch of goals that were set at the start of the year simply removes that flexibility. It starts to misalign your own incentives with the incentives of the company in ways that are really painful and kind of gross. And so often what I found is if you do set up a bonus incentive system and then you try to pivot the company, you have to like fix your bonuses or you just pay everyone out. You're like, oh, this is too hard. We'll just pay everyone out the bonus. And I'm like, at that point, I'd rather just use that for slightly more generous base salaries or ideally give people more equity because that is, you know, in the long term, that is the thing that is totally aligned with the incentives of building a startup, which is it's not worth anything until it's worth a shitload. That is true of your startup as well. And that is what you want people to be optimizing for. Yeah, it's interesting, Yanev, this is related to some of the fundraising horror stories and alignment discussions we've had in previous episodes, where if you receive capital in tranches tied to specific KPIs, you are screwing your investment, you're screwing the company because those KPIs will change and shift rapidly as you're learning and adjusting and iterating and pivoting. And so if you as an investor are trying to give money to companies in tranches, you are just screwing everything up. You're pre-committing to a certain trajectory. 
And the same is true for quarterly and half OKRs. You know, I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had with executives at a startup or scale up where the advice I'm giving is misaligned with their OKR. They're like, yeah, but Chris, our OKR this quarter is to do X. And I have to keep reminding them, like, I don't give a shit what your OKR is. I don't care. We've just learned that this is not the right thing to be doing for the company. So let's throw out the OKR and let's do the thing that is the right thing for the company. And so you want to be careful about all these big boy, big co things that you institute and having people around who are not creative or astute enough to notice this is the wrong incentive. And that certainly gets very true when you talk about bonuses. I, I agree with you, Yanev, I never thought about it that way, but you're giving people potentially a bad incentive to maintain momentum in a certain direction, even though your company may have learned that that's the wrong direction. And so yeah, bonuses in a young company can be actually quite distracting and destructive. I agree with you. All right. Well, I'm actually really pleased with that episode, Chris. That was a banger. I think we really put a lot of structure around what we called small business syndrome, right? We talked about eight different axes in which venture-backed Silicon Valley-style startups are fundamentally different from a regular business. And the more of these you get wrong, the more you run your startup the way you run a small business, the less likely you are to succeed. You can maybe get away with one or two of these, although I wouldn't recommend it. But the more of these axes in which you are playing the wrong game, the worse it's going to be. So I would suggest, Chris, we'll put in the show notes a link to the actual document that we used as the basis for this. I would print it out, stick it on your wall, ask yourself, am I doing any of these things? Why am I doing them? How can I stop doing them? Because, you know, I think it's really easy. Like the reason we keep mentioning this is because we are frustrated that great founders fall into this trap and great founders fall into these traps because they're easy to fall into. Like I said, a lot of them have to do with human nature. So you need to constantly be working against your own nature to build a really successful venture-backed startup. So you're probably sitting there listening to this podcast and you've got this uncomfortable feeling because you recognize yourself in this. You see the places in which you're having trouble living up to that full Silicon Valley style startup playbook and you need some help. Well, the person to give you that help is my co-host here, Chris. Chris, I know you love to work with companies and help them out to really achieve their full potential as a startup. How can people work with you? Yeah, that's right, NF. So these kind of comparison tables come from my one-on-one -on -one advisory work. That's what inspires me to write these things. And so if you want access to them ahead of everybody else, subscribe to my newsletter over at chrissard.com slash newsletter. And if you want to work one-on-one -on -one with me, I have limited slots available to do that at any given time. You can visit me at chrissard.com slash advisory and learn more about that. Thanks, Chris, for putting together this resource, folks. I hope you found this valuable. If you did, we would love you to honor the Startup Podcast Pack, which means we would like you to follow, rate, review us in your favorite listening app and on YouTube. And we would love a public shout out on your preferred social media channel. All right. Yeah, they have great as always. Okay. Fantastic, Chris. Thanks for that one. Catch you in the next one. Bye-bye. This episode of the Startup Podcast is brought to you by Coda. I met Shishir, the founder of Coda, in its early days, and he told me they were reinventing documents from the ground up. They have absolutely done that, folks. Coda brings together the best of documents, spreadsheets, and apps into a single platform that really reimagines the document. One thing we wanted to emphasize today is the way that Coda can help your startup with planning, with strategy, with tracking goals. If you think about how hard it is to stay aligned around documents, roadmaps, OKRs, planning cycles, Coda is the perfect place to bring all this together. It has 
integrations, automations, all sorts of powerful tools and templates that allow your team to stay on the same page. And if you listen to this podcast, you know how absolutely critical that is. Coda really is a fantastic platform. And exclusively for listeners of the Startup Podcast, Coda have a special offer where you can get $1,000 of free credit if you sign up today. Support the podcast and your own startup by going to coda.io slash TSP for the Startup Podcast and get started for free and get a $1,000 credit. Coda.io slash TSP. This episode of the Startup Podcast was brought to you by Vanta. Vanta helps businesses get and stay compliant by automating up to 90% of the work for the most in-demand compliance frameworks. With over 200 integrations, you can easily monitor and secure the tools your business relies on. Head to vanta.com slash TSP for 20% off their incredible offering and start unlocking extra revenue today. You want to be careful about having too much bureaucracy. (laughs) Maybe, can you get Noah out from behind my shot? (laughs) 